Welcome to Empathy Media, the podcast exploring empathy in action. I'm Peter Armstrong, and in this episode I'm meeting the radical Cambridge theologian Don Cupid and exploring his unique, lifelong spiritual journey. Let's look at this amazing journey you've had. You're in your 80s now. Take me back over that journey and just sketch through. I mean, the beginning, were you brought up in a religious household? No, my family was secular, but I always knew I had a religious temperament. It may have owed a little bit to my grandma, Cupid, who had hoped to become a doctor, but her family wouldn't let her because she had to stay home and look after the little children of the family. So um, she became an addict for every sort of forbidden knowledge and exotic religion. And perhaps she helped plant in me the idea of an intellectual quest for some kind of forbidden transcendent knowledge. Right. So how did that develop in your teenage years? And then take me yes. through the development over your life. Yes. Um, I was, because my father had done well in the war, setting up factories that made war materials, by the end of the war they decided to give us a good education, even though we came from a very humble background. And my father sent us all to expensive public schools out of income, which is astonishing. Um, but he sent the two boys to Charterhouse and the two girls to Cheltenham Ladies College. And there at Charterhouse, I, I studied zoology and fell under the influence of Darwin. And I became a leader, a monitor. And with all the other monitors, had to meet once a week in the headmaster's study to read Plato's Republic aloud and discuss it. Because we were a leadership class and we were, we were becoming guardians of society. And so I, I learned about the contrast between Plato's top-down vision of the world, which starts with visionary intellectuals who know the ultimate truth of things and for, comes all the way down to the lowest forms of uh, life and sense experience. And on the other hand, Darwin, who sees everything as coming up from below, as if we are uh, talking animals rather than fallen angels. Um, I went to get up to Cambridge with an exhibition to read Natural Sciences. I had thoughts of being a doctor like my sisters, but in the end it was Natural Sciences. But then I very quickly fell under the influence of evangelical Christianity and then started fighting my way out of that immediately because I knew it wasn't right for me. So the religious... What was wrong with it? It was too authoritarian and irrational and it required you to feel that you had experiences of communion with God and so on that I didn't have. Um, at least I didn't see what justified the extremely realistic language they used. Um, so I was trying to get out of it to a more liberal, perhaps more mystical, perhaps more intellectual outlook. In my, for my earliest twenties. In my third year, I changed to theology and fell under the influence of people like Owen Chadwick, the best-known Don in Cambridge at that time, and my teacher. And, and then, a few years later, I ended up at Westcott House. And there, I at last studied the philosophy of religion at part three, postgraduate level. And in that, I finally got a good first and the opportunity to become an academic if I wanted. In fact, I insisted on going to the north of England, back to my roots. 
And having done that Excuse for three me. years... You went back as what? As a Church of England? As a curate, yes, as a curate. So you did, you did decide on ordination at this point? Yes, I, was, yes, I went to Westgate House to be trained for ordination. And uh, in my, spent my first year doing the philosophy of religion, affiliated through Trinity Hall, my old college. Um, after I was ordained, I went to a parish. It was called a title in those days, to which you were ordained in Salford, as described in the book, The Sea of Faith. Uh, I enjoyed that very much, but the offers from Cambridge began to arrive. I came down and I looked at Corpus and I said no to Trinity Hall. And finally I came back to Westgate House, which they'd made me promise to do. There I succeeded John Habgood and Bob Runcie as vice-principal. So at this stage, one would say you you looked from the outside like a pretty conventional Christian. I was I was, I was substantially orthodox still until the mid late sixties. I think the late sixties. Yes, um, I was as close to Thomas Aquinas as anybody. That's to say, the the Thomist Catholicism that was a dominant thing in Christianity from about nineteen hundred to nineteen seventy or so. And I liked that. Um, the last pope who took that view was John Paul II, of course, the famous Polish pope. Um, yes. Um, anyway, I came back to Westcott House to teach. While I was at Westcott House, I remember John Robinson's Honest to God came out. I read it. I knew John Robinson. I'd been going to Clare Chapel and so on and met the circle of people there. But I wasn't very impressed by John's book. But it caught a nerve, I suppose, people were wanting a Christian humanism and John gave a glimpse of it. And the book was, of course, very successful and gradually began to influence the whole generation of us. At the same time, I also married and went up to £800 a year. That's quite something. I started as a curate on £400 a year. As vice-principal of Westcott House, I got £800. And then in '65. I was elected fellow and dean of Emmanuel College, and uh, the college uh, gave me 1,700 a year. So I was able to afford to marry and set up home. And we bought the house in which we're sitting for this conversation. The only house I've ever bought. Right. <laughs> so in terms of your belief, so we, up to this point, yes. pretty orthodox, but John Robinson gave you a little... A nudge, a nudge and the conflict between philosophy and science in my mind, rather unsure about where the two um, meet each other. During my life, a whole lot of things that used to be part of philosophy have been taken over by science, but most obviously space and time, language, consciousness, mind and body, a whole lot of things like that, which used to be the domain of philosophers, are now regarded as scientists as their domain. And science has become by far the strongest and most powerful way to knowledge that human beings have ever invented. That's why perhaps in the Sea of Faith series we started with Galileo, who single-handedly demonstrated that an individual with a little bit of observation, a bit of experiment and a bit of thought experiments in his head could overthrow a major revealed truth of the church and because in those days the church still held that its doctrines were metaphysically certain, their overthrow was unimaginable. So it's hard to imagine how great an event 
Galileo as challenging of the papacy was. Although he was obliged by threat of torture to recant, everybody with any brains knew he was right, and people tended to migrate to Holland, the most liberal regime in Western Europe, where, like Descartes and Spinoza, you could get on with it quietly by yourself and keep your head down. So were you starting to keep your head down in a manual, or were you still an Orthodox um, priest? I was still an Orthodox priest right through the 60s and into the 70s, and my first books were rather high Orthodox. I always disliked supernaturalism as a Darwinian, and I always disliked excessively anthropomorphic ideas of God. So people used to complain in the early 70s that my idea of God was rather Islamic. I saw God as very exalted, transcendent and unknowable, and my first book was called Christ and the Hiddenness of God. So it was a very high and dry idea of God, and it was by that route that I pushed God up into ideality in 1980. That's to say, I came to think eventually that God was a kind of imaginary focus of religious aspiration. God was a point of view from which we are judged, from which we can uh, see our lives objectively. God was the standpoint of eternity. That sort of very high idea of God was a starting point for my move away from orthodoxy into something rather strange and new. And which of the books was really the one that made brought this to public attention? Um, the first book where, in which I discovered I could do pure creative thought was The Leap of Reason, written in 73. To write that book, I whipped myself up into a state of extreme intellectual excitement. I used to go to bed every night with a few phrases running in my head and think all night and get up each, early each morning and scribble. And so in six weeks of intense intellectual excitement, I constructed a small system. Um, but it only broke through in a way that caused big trouble with taking leave of God in 1980. Um, I knew when I'd written that book that it was good and would live, but I also knew it would get me into a lot of trouble. Even though, so it was pretty difficult finding out how much trouble it did get me into. It really did. Um, and I realised that my career was over. John Robinson never got another academic job or another job in the church after Honest to God. If you put your head too far above the parapet, you've had it. <laughs> and uh, I knew that it happened to me. Uh, but my initial ambition after that was to create such a substantial body of work that it would not be possible for me to be uh, marginalised and shut down completely. Uh, my ideas would have to be noticed. How many books since then? I've just early in 2016 published my 51st single author book. So it's a long series that are sort of spiritual autobiography because I now think there is no objective ready-made truth of things out there and we humans have made all the truths we live by my thought is an endless quest in which I'm continually coming to new positions. I call that a projet fleuve. I've reached a final position for me, that's to say the last position I thought I'd ever find the strength to reach, in philosophy from about the age of 60 and in theology only in the last year or two. So in religious thought, 
Yes, I'm still changing right up to a year ago. But now, I mean, my 80s are running out of steam and it's virtually impossible to have really good new ideas after 80. So I, and besides, I've always said to other people, they should not have written their last three or four books. And I didn't want to end up saying that about myself. So, so official, I've shut up. <laughs> what was the big idea a year ago then in the last religious, important religious book? Which book was that? Whether to, whether to go all the way in treating Jesus as a blasphemer and a rebel against God. The charge of his enemies, one of the few things we're historically sure of about him, that he was seen as that. The reason for that was this. My old high orthodox God had always been, above all, a lawgiver. God gave religious law. Now, all my life I've been a rebel against religious law, and of course I've tended to see Jesus too as a rebel against religious law. But if you're that in Judaism, you're a rebel against God too, because God is uh, the God of religious law. Judaism, like um, Islam, has its body of religious law, which is the faith by which people live. Now, the first theologian who really saw this was Marcion, the first important Christian theologian and a kind of philosophical heretic, who said there was a wide gap between the Old Testament's God of law and Jesus' God of love. And Jesus was trying to transcend the old lawgiver God and replace him by a religion of love, in which love is God. One or two places in the New Testament confirm that. Look at the description or the analysis of the phrase God is love in the first epistle of St John in chapter 4. It's astonishing, but it virtually equates God with love. Um, which reminds me of Pierre in Tolstoy's War and Peace. Life is God, and to love life is to love God. Uh, interesting. These uh, thinkers on the left wing of Christianity are trying to return to the, uh, the original Jesus. Now, my question was, this last five years has been, how explicit could I make this? Did I want to produce a revolutionary kind of ultra-Quaker version of Christianity? Or did I want to leave it a bit open and ambiguous for other people to take up that idea if they wish? My own view is that the days when religion was based on a great revelation in the past are over now, and therefore I should not try to revive that. So, although I, I venerate Jesus now, and I'm a sort of follower, I can't quite call myself a Christian because I don't make him any kind of absolute. Uh, he didn't want to make any kind of absolute himself, of course. He was simply a moral teacher and surprisingly secular. But, uh, and he says, why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? One of the most overlooked sayings in all the Gospels. Why don't you judge for yourselves? So it's as if Jesus was wanting to emancipate people from the domination of their thinking by religious imperatives. That's, that's the real emancipation. He doesn't free us from our sins because he doesn't talk about sin. He frees us from a certain conception of God as lawgiver. When you say Jesus says this, Jesus says that, of course many people would use other quotes from the Gospels. But tell me about yes. the Jesus Seminar and how yes. you approach all that. Tell me about yes. that. 
Yes, I completed my philosophy, I think, by the end of the 90s, the early noughties, perhaps best expressed in a book called Above Us Only Sky. But by then, I'd already been invited to join the Jesus Seminar and went out and met them. They'd been founded by a chap called Bob Funk, an academic who'd got fed up with the dryness and barrenness of academic theology and tried to set up for himself theology, uh, a theology study institute in an industrial city, Santa Rosa, California. Uh, eventually, it came to uh, have about 400 theologians who, who met, various numbers of them, twice a year. They set out to study what was historical in the teaching of Jesus. They listed 1,300 units of tradition and discussed and voted on every single one separately. They took their material from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, one or two other New Testament sayings and the Gospel of Thomas, all the sources that contain anything about Jesus that's likely to be historical. Um, and having discussed it thoroughly, they classified only 29 sayings in the very top class and 100 in the second and uh, the others, which they printed grey and black in their version of the New Testament, were later editions by the church. But there are only 29 sayings that they thought, give us an idea of what the Jesus tradition looked like in the first generation after his death. And they showed there his curiously supernaturalist ethics. He goes beyond an ethics of reciprocity in which you are nice to back to people who are nice to you, as it were, to an ethics of ultra-generosity, the famous uh, sayings about turning the other cheek and going an extra mile and so on. The ethics is one of a more than legal generosity. That became central to uh, uh, the Jesus Seminar account of Jesus' teaching, and that's where he breaks overwhelmingly with the religion of law. Notice that in Christianity, if you commit sins, you confess them to God. The basic moral relationship is the vertical relation to God. Even if you've sinned against someone else, it's to God that you confess your sin. Um, that began to change. And in Jesus himself says you should agree with the person you're, you should be reconciled with the person you're in dispute with. But, it, but just in the last few years in Western service books, people have begun to introduce the idea of sinning against other people. And Jesus himself puts the horizontal relationship between one human being and another at the very centre of his teaching. It's not the vertical relationship, he's not a mystic, he doesn't particularly claim religious experiences, and his idea of God appears to be very dispersed. God is scattered across the world as the kind of glory or radiance which he sees in natural beauty and in light. So when traditional Christians would point to things like hmm. the Lord's Prayer, Our Father yes. in Heaven, are you saying that in, in the Jesus Seminar they would be grey and black? Yes. Where did they yes. come from? Tell me about those. Yes. The church... Uh, well, yes, I know, this is a complicated one. Um, <laughs> the crucial thing to grasp is the date of the resurrection. If you study the resurrection narratives, the crucial thing is who is the first witness, the order of the witnesses, and when did this really sink in? If you look at 1 Thessalonians, the first agreed Christian doctrine, AD 51, the resurrection idea is only just coming in. It occurred to me that 
the resurrection took a long time to happen because it's really a dispute about who's boss between the clerics, the, the, particularly between Peter and um, James, the Lord's brother, leading the Jerusalem community. Um, it looks as if Mary Magdalene had some kind of experiences of Jesus as still alive, but because she was a woman, they didn't take much notice of her at first. But gradually, as the first generation began to die away and arguments about leadership grew, the Petrine group began to claim that Peter had seen the risen Lord and had seen him first, that Jesus was exalted to the heavenly world. Now, remember, for Jesus himself there had been no heavenly world. Jesus was preaching that the kingdom was coming on earth. He was closing the gap between the two worlds. But the resurrection reintroduces it the resurrection, coming to be believed at the end of the 40s, just before Paul arrived, the resurrection confirmed supernaturalism, the belief in a heavenly world above, because Jesus was waiting there and would soon return. And the church was invented as a society of disciplined society of people governed by the clergy, who were like the officer class, who were waiting vigilantly for the return of Jesus. So the church became highly supernaturalist in orientation. Notice, even to this day, that almost every church, the only human figure you will see portrayed is somebody who is in the heavenly world. That's still true. And church, when you go to church, it's like the antechamber of eternity. It's like the foyer of a cinema. You get a glimpse of the heavenly people who live in the world beyond. Photographs of them are already up in the stained glass windows and so on. Um, and the imagery, of course, so, of, sorry, yes. do you want to go on? Or? Yes, I, I can continue, yes. Yeah. Yes, with the return of supernaturalism, the sayings of Jesus got revised. And instead of his life of self-outing love and generosity and immediacy, a long-termist ethic of hiding your virtues now, being inward and laying up treasure in heaven, calculating carefully about your long-term salvation. That was superimposed on Jesus' teaching. If you go through the Sermon on the Mount, as I've done in my books, you can highlight with um, different coloured uh, markers those passages of the Sermon on the Mount which teach the immediate ethics of self-outing love for your neighbour and the long-termist passages which are more like Catholicism oriented towards your final salvation in the supernatural world after your death. It's amazing that all these centuries, no Christian before me ever pointed that out, because it's a glaring contrast once it's made, that there are two people in the Sermon on the Mount giving us quite different moral philosophy. The original Jesus was an emotivist. The second Jesus, the Christ of the developed faith, is an Aristotelian and a long-termist who says you must do everything uh, that will help, to, uh, help you to achieve your final salvation. But they're two quite different figures. Um, it's, uh, it astonishes me that even people like Kierkegaard and Tolstoy fail to notice this division. So much of my last books depends on whether one sees this contrast, how one interprets it. On my view, uh, the conclusion is that the age of mediating ecclesiastical religion, preparing us for a heavenly world, is coming to an end. Now we want a religion for this life only. 
and religion of immediacy, and I point to the curious way in which the teaching of Jesus has returned in modern culture through the League of Nations and the United Nations, through the medical profession, and through remarkable things like organ donation and the gift of blood. Uh, an extreme generosity towards your fellow human being is now taken for granted. Most of us carry an organ donor card. Most of us have considered at least giving blood. Now that's sort of, that's more than the generosity of the law. It's a sign that the whole of society is moving into a kind of kingdom Christianity after the end of the ecclesiastical period, which I think happened about the time of the French Revolution, really. Since then, the state has come more and more to care for the poor and sick in society and to see that people get educated. The state assumes responsibility. It doesn't just rule the people. It, it's in charge of their well-being. So we've moved into a different world now, and I see this as Christianity's historical destiny unfolding. Because I think you said that Christianity was quite a good religion until the 17th century, a kind of <laughs> adequate, is that right? Is that how you would put it? What would you say? Well, it went well with, the, with uh, an agricultural civilization which knew only absolute monarchy and was extremely class divided. It was a very, very hierarchical masters and servants picture of the universe that um, corresponded to a master and servant society. But once a democratic and critical impulse really begins to stir in society, which basically in our country is after the English Revolution, um, things have to change. Christianity ceased to be up to date um, as soon as the Enlightenment was underway. Notice that by 1700, the great uh, deist controversialist are raising all the critical objections to Christianity and the theologians who defend orthodoxy producing great tomes to try to put them down. Could you describe just how hierarchical the old religion was in terms of kingship and hierarchy yes. in heaven? Well, God was seen as a king and worshipped in yes. the court, isn't it? How would you say? Well, think, for example, in Russia of uh, the court dress and how, how close a parallel there was between court ceremonial and religious ceremonial. God was spoken of in Russia as the great father in heaven, the Tsar was the little father on earth. And of course in Western Europe similarly, you have a holy father in Rome, a right reverend father in your local cathedral, and a father in your local parish church. So it was an extremely hierarchical, patriarchal vision of the world. It's not easy to shift. I'm afraid simply ordaining women as priests doesn't do enough to shift it. We've got to get rid of that extremely hierarchical vision, hence my admiration for the Quakers. They saw the need to get rid of that very early on, and they changed what they called the steeple house into a meeting house, and they abolished all rank and so on. If you go to a, an old Quaker graveyard, you see small round-topped gravestones with just a Christian name and surname on them and nothing else. That I admire. You should not put a list of people's worldly achievements on their gravestones. What do you want on your gravestone? Just what there is on Wittgenstein's first name and second name. I, in fact, I'm um, going to be buried in a woodland burial ground where you're only al al allowed to put down a wooden tablet uh, which can rest there until it rots, and after that, nothing. 
I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm happy to be recycled into nature. Because on my view, the whole of reality is simply a flux of pure contingency. Through our language, we carve it up to make our world out of it. And we ourselves are a persistent pattern in it that lasts for just so long and then disappears. So we are basically transient and the whole of reality is, but we can put on a good show while we last. We should go up like rockets and then die and fall to earth unnoticed, as I sometimes put it. <laughs> but if there was an epitaph, yes. what would you want it to be? <laughs> um, I wouldn't want any... Not on I'd the gravestone, but let's say in academic remembrance. I don't know. and I, I don't want myself to found a religion. When the Sea of Faith, the society was founded, I declined to hold office in it and always have done. I'm quoting Nietzsche, don't follow me, follow yourself. As Nietzsche says, has the command not to be commanded by me. So I'm delighted that the Sea of Faith has gone its own way in all the places where it's become established and nobody thinks it is a new religion of any kind. It's a totally free religious society, freer even than the Quakers. I am so anti any kind of organisation in religion that even the Quakers strike me as being a little bit tight, a little bit disciplinarian. So let's talk about the Sea of Faith for a moment. What was the re why do you think it was so well received? by the public? It was very well made. I was sorry, lucky in that. Sorry, no, <coughs> if you could introduce the idea. Take me back yes, to that. Yes. Yes, in the 70s, I made one or two appearances on television. Religious television was much more active then than it is now. And as a result of that, I developed a relationship with Peter Armstrong, the producer eventually of The Sea of Faith, he and I made together a couple of other projects. One was called Open to Question, a sort of talk and discussion format, and another was called Who Was Jesus? Peter wanted to do, attempt a systematic project with me, and that's what we initially discussed from about 1980, 1979. But my coming out in the way I did with taking leave of God didn't help. And actually, I wasn't ready at that time to attempt a systematic project. So what we did in The Sea of Faith eventually was produce a series of art documentaries describing the what's perhaps the greatest intellectual upheaval in human history, by which the old religion-based religion civilizations of the past have come to an end and are replaced by the science-based industrial civilization of today. That changeover typically started with Galileo and was complete by the time of Wittgenstein, and when ordinary language and everyday life become central to philosophy. It's a long process in which critical thinking advances, um, everyday life advances, society and thought are democratized, and religion becomes more and more this-worldly, the thing of how you relate yourself to life in the present moment. And gradually, to a surprising degree, belief in life after death has faded away, even within the religions themselves. For example, I think there are rather few Christians now who have any vivid conception of life after death at all. So we seem to be giving up supernaturalism and looking for a new kind of religion. 
to some extent, I see this new kind of religion as already existing in, for example, the medical profession and everything that it does in the National Health Service and so on. That's strongly permeated by Christian ethics all the way through. So um, going back to Sea of Faith, it seemed to chime with the audience. What was it about yes. it that caught their imagination, do you think? What was there? Did you get yes. a lot of letters? What happened? I, uh, while the Sea of Faith was being broadcast, I was getting between 80 and 100 letters a day, and I kept them knowing that John Robinson had kept his letters and that a book had been made of them. About a year after the Sea of Faith was broadcast, a group of clergymen in Leicestershire approached me and saying they'd be meeting to discuss the series and they wanted to call a national conference and could I help them? So I said I'd do things, two things. First, I uh, would, of course, be glad to attend that conference if they held one and would talk if they wanted me to. Um, I also said I got this big box of letters. I'd go through it and write down the names of addresses of a two or three hundred people who written interesting letters to me. So I did that, it took a day or two, and um, mailed them the mailing list, and that became the core membership of Sea of Faith. People wanted to talk. Remember, these were people, questioning, thinking people, who, who all their lives have been going to church and nobody had ever asked them what they think. The church doesn't ask you what you think. It doesn't help you on your own intellectual journey. It simply assumes that the creed of your baptism will last till the day you die without being thought about. Well, that's not the modern world. People wanted a really free society where they could discuss the great issues that the Sea of Faith documentary series had raised. It wasn't more than that. It wasn't really a set of answers. It was an opportunity for really free discussion, uninhibited. But so strong was the inhibition that, believe it or not, the first Sea of Faith conference kept the names of the clergymen attending secret in case they got sacked as a result. Some um, did get, one did get sacked, didn't they? What happened? One, one person did, yes. Anthony Freeman, a cleric in the Diocese of Chichester, was expelled from his living by his bishop without any trial or procedure and um, suddenly found himself homeless and out of a job. Um, simply because his bishop withdrew his licence to officiate and, and, and expelled him from a post he held only on the bishop's word. He didn't have tenure. Because of his connection to He published a book called God in Us, um, um, uh, which basically took a, my point of view, a non-realist view of God. So it was a Christian humanist work, only a step to the left of John Robinson, but that was at that time too much. I think today you can hold Anthony Freeman's views and survive comfortably in the church, but you're, you mustn't be too salient about it. I suppose in the Sea of Faith we looked at how new world views came in and then Christianity adapted in yes. which case and new forms of religion evolved. So just looking at some of the big changes that have happened since Sea of Faith, you mentioned fundamentalism. Of course, in the Islamic context, it's been allied now to an extreme violence. And that, I think, has soured many people's view about religion. They want to even more keep it at arm's length. Yeah. What would you say about that? Yes, from the 19th century, we got from Tolstoy and then Gandhi, the idea that non-violent protest could bring about effective political change. And Gandhi organised the Indian workers in South Africa successfully to claim equal rights back in the beginning of the 20th century. After that, for a long period, there was a belief 
in a Christian type of non-violence that came through in, for example, the CND. But the new people, um, are Islam, the new Islamists, think that anyone who's a heretic ought to be slaughtered. There has been no ecumenical movement in Islam and it's unimaginable. I have occasionally tackled Muslim friends and said, we've managed to calm down the bitterness between Catholic and Protestant. They no longer kill each other or want to. And he said, we can't do that in Islam, sorry. The King of Jordan made one attempt in the Amman Declaration about five or six years ago. But otherwise, nobody has had any success about, with an ecumenical movement in Islam. And the belief in countries like Pakistan that any dissenter can be lynched immediately is horrifically now entrenched. I do believe Muslims themselves have got to get rid of that quickly. Because I myself think that Islam has a glorious past uh, as a liberal and tolerant faith. I quote there one of the best of the early Christian theologians, John of Damascus, who lived in Syria at Damascus because Islam was more tolerant than Byzantium. In his day, Byzantines uh, was iconoclastic. The images were smashed. John was in favour of images. He held the wrong views, but Islam gave him a convenient and liberal shelter. Islam was wonderfully civilised and learned, especially in its first five or six centuries. But in the modern world, since the Enlightenment, the Ottoman Turkish dynasty caliphate um, declined and failed to understand what had gone on in the West with the Enlightenment and the rise of science. And they, it began to experience all the unexpected and horrifying defeats in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And that tended to embitter Islam and turn it against the West. And that's been very unfortunate. We need an intellectual reconciliation between Islam and the West. And we need Islam to recover its old liberality. Wonderful. Next big change, I suppose, that's happened since the Sea of Faith is, particularly in church circles, um, gay rights. What would you say about that whole area? It's interesting that close friendship and fellowship between two men is quite a feature of Christian history. There are several pairs of missionaries who go about together in a pair of men. Paul and Barnabas, Cyril and Methodius. There's a sort of pairings like that. There's lots of them. Um, it may be there's more of a gay tradition in Christianity than we've yet recognised. I tend to see, when people tell me the Bible forbids homosexuality, I'd like you to explain to me the story of David and Jonathan and David's lament over the death of Jonathan, because if that's not, not gay, I don't know what is, and the Bible approves of it. But they never mention that, why not? <laughs> and so I want to challenge them on that. I also want to say, well, it just is a fact that human sexuality is a rather fluid, easily displaced thing. It takes different forms. Most of us may be straight and quite glad of it, but uh, lots of people are not, and they include many of the most talented. Of course, notoriously, gay men have always been numerous amongst actors and amongst artists and intellectuals. We should not be sexually intolerant. Christianity has been too sexually intolerant in the past. This has led to too much repression. Historically, it's, women have always been too much repressed by men in the interests of channeling women into serving 
patriarchal and patrilineal descent, heredity, and proper of property and so on. Um, so our civilization has been too repressive for too long, and I'd like it to be more liberal, but that'll take time to uh, evolve. Meanwhile, I simply oppose anti-gay prejudice. I deliberately adopted the phrase solar ethics and talked of coming out by way of borrowing from the gay the idea that a modern person likes to be authentically himself in public. One doesn't want to live a hidden life nowadays. The Sermon on the Mount here and there, when the second Jesus is talking, seems to think you can live like a spy with a second hidden secret identity. I say no. And I say no to the sort of church leader who thinks one thing in the study and another thing with his mitre on. A lot of recent popes and archbishops have been like that and, and, admit, and have admitted it. But it's a very unhappy position to be in, to be, have a kind of built-in dishonesty in yourself. And of course, the dark side of that is it gets into sexual abuse by... Yes, it does. It does, I'm afraid. Yes, it's horrific that it happened in the case of somebody as undoubtedly eminent as George Bell. That really uh, was a shock to me because I'd been brought up as perhaps you were to admire him. Yes, but I, I think there's something wrong there. The requirement of clerical celebrity, celibacy was originally introduced, it said, because the clergy would leave church property to their children. In those days, before the Enlightenment, people didn't make a clear distinction between money that belonged to you, to your office, and, and your own private money. To this day, the Pope doesn't get paid a salary. Um, and not very long ago, an Archbishop of, of Chicago, <laughs> not very long ago, an Archbishop of Chicago left a million dollars to his mistress of church money. They used to do that. Clerical celibacy was introduced rather like the Jesuit order, to produce people who were totally devoted to the church and would have no private interests outside their church function. But this has a bad effect. Personally, I think we should have a married clergy and we should be less sexually repressive. Too many lives are ruined by um, sex in one way or another. And I think, for example, there could be less abortion if we were systematically kinder to pregnant women, whether they're married or not. The way to reduce the amount of abortion is to treat pregnant young women more kindly. Two more. The next one is the internet. That's a completely new phenomenon in the world since the of faith. How has that affected the church and religious thinking? Yes. I think the internet is increasing globalisation because when you're talking to somebody else on the internet, his ethnic background, his tradition, all that stuff is not there. You don't see it. It's not noticeable. So the new means of communication, especially the great ring of satellites around the Earth, are tending to create a single world conversation of humanity. And that's a very good thing. I wish we had also a stronger United Nations because we need it to get over climate change. But uh, yes, the internet, I don't think the internet will create a super brain, but it ought to connect, create a single world humanity. It ought to be kind of Pentecostal. It ought to be bring people of different cultures and traditions together into a single um, field. 
of discourse. And that, I think, is rather good. I remember noticing when I first started going out to Australia and New Zealand to visit the Sea of Faiths there, when the plane stopped at different places along the route, like um, Dubai and Singapore and so on, newspapers would be brought on board and you could pick them up and there was an English language newspaper discussing all the same problems in each place you went to across the world. Um, that first brought home to me how much there is now a single world culture. And then at the beginning of the present millennium, I was amazed to find myself lecturing in English at the University of Beijing and discovering how amazingly like Western students, Chinese students were. Is there, oh, yes, is there also a point about the authority of the church now being questioned in the same way the doctor's authority is questioned because people go online? Yes, the church looks a bit local. The church finds it very hard to be fully global in its teaching and outlook and so on. We tend to belong to only one cultural tradition and one language. For Christians, Hebrew, Greek and Latin. For Muslims, principally Arabic. For Buddhists, the Pali Canon and uh, the languages of South and East Asia. But um, the, the great missionary religions are still there, but they're in decline, they're troubled. They don't know how to globalise themselves. That's why I want to go out with the Quakers, but one step beyond even the Quakers, to develop a fully free world religious discourse. Since the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1947, we've had something like a world moral discourse about human rights, which has some persuasive power everywhere in the world. We haven't yet developed any world religious vocabulary, but I'd like to do that as soon as possible. Wonderful. Very last question. The refugee crisis, that's completely gotten yes. much, so much worse since Sea of Faith. How do you see that? Yes, you, yes. Please I, introduce that idea. My very last book was a little book on climate change, which I was writing in the early spring of 2015. Since then, a lot of what's in the book has been happening. One thing that I talked about was that global warming will manifest itself in economic instability, declining authority of government, governments collapsing, civil unrest, vast movements of population. It's all happening. And I'm afraid there's no sign of it getting any better. I think from now on there's trouble. There's going to be chronic problems of huge quantities of refugees. And I fear we're going to be wakened up very quickly to just how serious the global warming problem is. At the moment, we're still discussing building new roads, putting new runways on airports and so on, as if we could go on increasing the amount of carbon we spray into the atmosphere. We can't. We've got to start discussing how we can maintain a decent standard of life and culture with a far lower level of consumption, because the human race will only survive if we do that. As it is, we almost certainly face a very large reduction of population. People are going to be flying around the world looking for somewhere where it's still safe to live. So it, what, what's the, how does the refugee crisis fit your idea of a generous Christian ethic? Well, I was very impressed when this, um, a few months ago, uh, so I was very impressed when Chancellor Merkel and uh, the Swedish government too uh, offered such a generous response to the arrival of refugees in Europe. It was a terrible disappointment that most of Eastern Europe 
retreated almost immediately into a very defensive nationalism. That was a disaster. The Germans uh, were right. Um, we should have been much more generous. Um, indeed, in the, the most recent books, I say it'll be the real test whether we can rebuild society and keep a decent standard of life and culture going in the face of huge refugee arrivals. I think now, by using solar power and greenhouses and this and that, we can greatly increase the productivity of the land that's left to us. And um, it should be possible to feed a pretty large world population, but the world population we've got now will probably have to fall a bit. But I'm just going back to this link to ethic, Jesus' ethics. I mean, let me ask you the very old-fashioned yeah. question. What would Jesus do in face of the refugee crisis? Well, I admit them. Of course, just admit. You, you can't. If there's a poor man knocking at your door, you can't barricade the door and phone the police. You have to let him in. Uh, Jesus has a story of a chap who arrives at another man's door late at night and knocks. He's out of food. He, I guess he's arrived, he wants to feed. Um, and Jesus, of course, is critical with that mean-spirited attempt to, to uh, throw up defences. Narrow nationalism, keeping out foreigners. It's thoroughly detestable. We're all foreigners. Um, uh, Britain is one of, and like the United States, <coughs> is a country most of its people are descended from immigrants. You mentioned the word humanist there, and that's what a lot of people would say listening to your views. Well, this is fine, it's a very good position. It's a standard secular position. Yes, but Jesus was secular. And Christianity itself is secular. Christianity from the very beginning talked about this world. Remember, the Garden of Eden was a state of this world, and the Kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurated was a state of this world. That's how it was seen by the Jews, the coming together of heaven and earth. Um, so humanism is built into the whole religion, as it is into the Jewish religion as well. Think of Rembrandt's paintings of the Jews of Amsterdam, the profoundest expression of European humanism. Religious paintings, but also Jewish and Christian art. Um, Christianity was going to develop into humanism because in Christianity itself, God is content to become man and to die. Look at the collect for Good Friday in my old liturgy. We beseech thee to behold this thy family for which our Lord Jesus Christ was contented to be betrayed and so on. Um, so the, the whole movement of Christianity is from God to man, from the other world to this world. It's, uh, there's a curious death of God takes place even in the Bible itself. The vivid appearances of God are all in Genesis and Exodus, the earliest books farthest back in time, supposedly. But really vivid appearances of God as an intense burning fire that will kill you if you see it, or it might kill you, or touch it. Um, they're very early on. Gradually, God disappears and is replaced by religious law in the Old Testament. God is replaced by the figure of Christ in the New Testament. Instead of seeing God, you have things like a vision of the transfiguration of Christ or a vision of the resurrection. And I often point out the last and greatest painting of the Middle Ages, the Jan van Eyck altarpiece in uh, Ghent in Belgium, 
pictures Jesus the man on the throne of God. You have to look closely at the picture and its inscriptions to see it. But it's a picture of the divinization of humanity. It seems to be Orthodox Catholicism, but it's also pure humanism. And that is the last and greatest painting of the Middle Ages. And at the very bottom of the painting, in the centre, there's something I like to see, the fountain of life. You say the divinization of man, because that was that's more a theme in the Orthodox Church, isn't it, than in Catholic? Yes, Catholic. not in the West, because Western Christianity became rather a guilt machine. The clergy controlled, may, first made you guilty, and then said, we control the way to forgiveness. You've got to obey us and pay up. <laughs> and that's the way the system worked. Um, in the West, we came to think that the clergy almost were a church within the church that controlled the church, a kind of controlling which made the church almost analogous to a military dictatorship in the state. Whereas that, in the East? In the East, it's rather different. The, the parish clergy are married and, and they're more integrated into village life. And Christianity is not so narrative, it's more mystical. In the beauty of the liturgy, you find a glimpse of the platonic eternal world and a consolation for the sorrows of life and hardships of life. The Eastern Christianity is extremely beautiful, but it's not my religion, of course. But, mm. You mentioned the sorrows of the world. Now, I think yeah. you've said in one of your books that by taking the position that you do, the problem of evil, the classically biggest problem for theology, in a way dissolves away. Is that right? How, what would you say about that? Yes, in the classical Western Christianity, first you start theology with God, the sovereignty of God, his wisdom, he's, he's the creator and so on. All things are bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small. Uh, that, that immediately raises the problem of evil. If God is absolutely good and uh, powerful, why is there any evil at all? Whereas if you start with the unsatisfactoriness of our present world and discussions of how we might set about thinking of and building a better world, then the problem of evil doesn't arise in the same way or to the same degree. So I think that eventually the, the problem of evil largely brought down Western Christianity in the thought of people like David Hume, but also for ordinary people in the horrific slaughter of the First World War. Think of the huge effect on that, on people's faith in God. Um, and the disaster of the church having been so complicit in the general enthusiasm at the beginning of the First World War. There should not have been such a degree of public enthusiasm for war, either in England or in Germany. It was a mistake. Coming back to the theme of humanism, if you feel Christianity has a kind of built-in closeness to humanism, why the big um, kerfuffle today between the, the Dawkins position and, and the church? What? That's mainly evangelicals. So could you explain, yes. explain that? Yes. Richard Dawkins is writing mainly against evangelicals. He admits that he is culturally a Christian, as in a sense all, uh, all English-speaking people are. We're culturally Christians. We acknowledge the authority of Christian ethics. But um, the fundamentalist Christian position developed in America at the end of the 19th century. It was terrified of critical thinking, particularly biblical criticism, and it was terrified of scientific rationalism and of Darwin. So the original fundamentals set out in a series of pamphlets defined opposition to uh, Darwinism 
and any sort of subjective theory of the resurrection and so on, these are all laid down as uh, red lines that must not be yielded. And evangelicalism to this day is a protest against the secular traditions of thought that have brought down traditional dogmatic Christianity. It's a protest. Now, to this day, evangelicals are suspicious of Darwin in particular, and it's quite amazing that there are states in the United States where Darwinism can't be taught in public schools. It's shocking because the USA is by rather a long way the world's leading scientific country, but it's also the world's leading anti-scientific country. And sometimes, with the rise of a person like Trump, one begins to suspect that the United States is rather like Saudi Arabia. The very rich who control society have allied themselves with fundamentalist religion because it's politically rather passive and it makes a very convenient alliance. The one described by Bernard Shaw in Major Barbara. Remember Andrew Undershaft, the great industrialist, sees um, Major Barbara, the Salvation Army girl, as an ally working on the same side as his. So Richard Dawkins is protesting I didn't want to involve myself at all in that controversy because, I, of course, I entirely agree with Dawkins because I, I did five years science myself and have known many members of Darwin's family. Several of them were friends. I even, as a boy at Trinity Hall, used to know R.A. Fisher, the man who saved Darwinism in the 1920s, the great theorist of natural selection. Um, so I felt very bound up with Darwinian biology and I'm shocked that Christians should be so ignorant as not to accept it. Really. So why this rise of so-called new atheism? What's that about? Does society need to hear this new voice more I suppose strongly? the new atheism is a protest against fanatical theism from people who think there's only one truth and they know it. Yet there is an old slogan, one church, one faith, one Lord. Those who believe in one God and one religious law tend to think there is only one absolute truth of things and to use an old Catholic slogan, error has no rights. They're very intolerant. Whereas the rest of us see free discussion as the best way to arrive at truth. So we want society to be open, uh, an open forum in which uh, people are going to say what they like within reasonable limits. But uh, we don't want any kind of Tyranny, as the Poles said after Lechwawensa's success, we don't want to replace a red dictatorship with a black dictatorship. We don't want the church's control of truth to come back. We want democracy, which is freedom and equal rights for many truths, all man-made. On my view, all truth is man-made. There is no truth out there. All theories... Um, are human and have a limited life. Some are better than others, and I'll certainly try to persuade other people my own opinions, but I don't claim any kind of absoluteness, no. Mm -hmm.